Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hello, I think we should start the show before something bad happens to the stock market again. Hello. Wow, yeah. Yeah, there's I some, mean, there's some <laughs> stock prices in today's there. show that we really need to just uh, lock in because they're probably going to be obsolete in the next two hours. That's true. So, I mean, let's just get right into it. Uh, Alex and I had a, a really great chat with uh, Jack Carp, one of our reporters here at Law360. We were talking all about the efforts to vaccinate the federal judiciary and, um, well, the judiciary in general, uh, courts around the country. And yeah. um, sort of the, the way that that has not been super consistent, much like the rest of the last year or so there's been some uh, some hiccups in the process uh but we had a really interesting chat with jack um so stick around we're gonna we're gonna hear from him uh later on in the show good chat with jack uh, and a great story that we will of course link to like we always do but as i teased up top uh there is a lot of news going on uh and we will of course start uh with the stonks bill i believe you have a stonks update for us <laughs> we will be talking about the stonk market okay um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the whole country's freaking out about GameStop. Uh, you may remember them, the the floundering video game retailer. Uh, their stock went through the roof this week because a, I guess, internet mob. I don't know what other word to describe them. Uh, they wanted to stick it to a bunch of hedge funds. So yes. I think we probably would have found a way to talk about this, you know, no matter what. But uh, but today we got the the yeah the thing we crave here on the show. We got some lawsuits. So we're going to talk all about this whole situation. Yeah, I mean, I think we all kind of saw that lawsuits would come out of this because it's been, um, you know, pretty hotly talked about, a lot of moving parts, a lot of money involved. Um, but I think we need to set up for anybody who's missed it uh, and is thinking, like, why are we talking about GameStop? Does that even still exist? What's going on here? What is going on with GameStop? It exists, and it's, I mean, currently financially doing better than ever. Uh <laughs> This whole thing's kind of a mess, so I'm going to try to go pretty quickly to sort of explain it in, you know, sort of explainery language, but uh, you know, bear with me. I'll do we'll do about 2 minutes on this. Okay. Um, okay. So starting last year and really but really speeding up in January this month, um a, a a large number of retail investors, that is amateurs who are using platforms yeah. like E-Trade uh rather than, you know, professionals who work on Wall Street. They started investing in GameStop, which, you know, you alluded to Amber, but it's it was the a, a once fairly popular but but very very long declining uh, video game retailer that you probably remember from the mall from the two thousands. Um, <laughs> yes, this this whole thing was egged on and organized or orchestrated or whatever you want to call it by something called Wall Street Bets, which is a irreverent weird, offensive, whatever you want to call it, uh, Reddit forum for day traders, for people who trade stocks sort of in their spare time. Um, GameStop's prospects have not improved. If if anything, they have gotten much worse during the pandemic because they're a brick and mortar store, you know, yeah. like much. And, and, you know, I don't know if anyone out there plays video games, but they're primarily purchased via download now. You don't really mm -hmm. go to a store and buy a disc anymore. Um, so then that begs the question, why were all these people investing in GameStop? Um, some of it appears to be just sort of like nihilistic, you know, meme investing. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, the thing on the internet known as 
posting, uh, the yes, financial yes. version of that. Um, but others seem to have this sort of coherent idea that they wanted to, you know, mess with troll, whatever you want to say. Um, th- several very powerful hedge funds that had taken out short positions on GameStop, and and mm-hmm. that's where sort of this gets fun and gets interesting. Because while the Reddit people loved GameStop, um, a few very, very powerful hedge funds had taken out um, what are known as short positions, meaning they had essentially bet that the stock price would drop. When a stock like that then starts to go up unexpectedly, you get what's known as a short squeeze, which is the, the hedge funds that took these short positions, they have to then... They have to then sort of cut bait and buy yeah. back some of this stock to mitigate their risk. They are a hedge fund. They, they uh, have to hedge. That's exactly <laughs> hedge. That's, that's where the and name comes from. That creates this then, you know, vicious or virtuous cycle, depending on which perspective you're taking, but um, where th- it then drives the price up even further. So further, you know, screwing up their short bet. It sort of snowballs, and that's what's known as a short squeeze. Mm-hmm. So that's what we got this week with GameStop, where there was this drive to sort of irrationally invest in it and then it screwed over all these short positions which then drove the price up even more uh mm-hmm. it it was up uh as much as 1700 percent at one point wow. uh, the company's value rose practically overnight from two billion dollars to 24 billion dollars <laughs> uh and you know those hedge funds that had taken those that had bet that the company was going to keep declining which you know that seems like a fairly reasonable bet considering again it's a brick and mortar video game company uh they lost billions of dollars this is so interesting i think because you these kinds of things do happen in the market but it's so unusual that reddit was involved and this is um small time investors forcing this uh short squeeze to a hedge fund that's the unusual part well and before we go further i feel as though we should disclose uh did anybody get in on this anybody on the call did anybody is, 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 is anybody got skin in the gme game i don't either uh, if you'll allow me a quick digression, I have a blood oath against GameStop because when I worked at Hollywood Video, we had an affiliation with Game Crazy. They were <laughs> our video game partner, Brick and Mortar. That company is fully dead. Uh, anyway. This is uh, amazing because now it is show canon that you worked at both the Rainforest Cafe I, and Hollywood Video, two yeah. stalwarts <laughs> of the Bush administration. Tune in next week for more of my misadventures in my early employment. Anyway, so uh, GameStop is a is a juggernaut. Uh, because of this, at least in, at least on paper, um, but where does that leave us? I mean, we're we're you know, it's uh, it's a boon, and everybody's having a good time, and I guess that's all. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think anyone watching this knew that the story was not just going to end with GameStop being up seventeen hundred percent in a week. <laughs> right. Um, so the the weirdness sort of continued. It was sort of frying the brains of like the CNBC Fox business people where everyone was just watching it and being like, this can't happen. And other yeah. sort of long dying embattled brands, BlackBerry, Blockbuster, things like that. They started seeing these huge irrational spikes in value as well as this Reddit forum turned its eye of Sauron onto those different areas. So, yeah. um, you know, this is in the part of the story where we're going to start talking about Robinhood, which is yeah. this this um, uh, smartphone app. It's a it's a no commission investment, you know, retail investment tool that many of the folks who were engaged in this whole frenzy were using to do it. And 
one could argue that it's it, it was this exact kind of technology that that allowed this to happen that you know it, it sort of democratized i think is how they phrase it that yes. this ability to do this kind of thing and you know take a what what would have been otherwise just sort of like some angry dudes on the internet and turn it into something like this yeah it, um, it, you, you you can be gordon gecko when you're not playing video games yeah, like you can in, exactly. you can invest in video games <laughs> yeah um but so on on wednesday evening as this all was continuing to get wackier and wackier um, several of these investment platforms, including Robinhood, put a halt on new purchases of shares in GameStop and a bunch of these other companies um, that were seeing similar spikes in their share value. Robinhood cited, quote, significant market volatility. It was a very sort of sparsely worded statement um, yeah. and said that they would allow people to close out their positions, but not to buy more. And, and these other one, the other platforms added restrictions like, you know, you have to your margin has to be, you know, they just made it more difficult to do these kind of things. Uh, so unsurprisingly, at that point, the the stock that had, you know, you might call it a bubble. Uh, <laughs> it then began to burst. One might and, say, yes. Um, you know, today the stock started to plunge and mm-hmm. it was down 68% at one point today on Thursday. And, uh, you know, as we're recording, um, it's down about 30%. And um, the last I saw was that trading was halted by the exchanges because it had seen so much volatility. Well, that's where we get to our beloved litigation uh, here, right? So, so who um, filed suit, and what did they say about what Robinhood had done? Amber, I'm just upset that you didn't read the notes uh, the way that they were <laughs> supposed to be read, which was the voice of the man who goes, "Let's get ready to litigate." I'm His so name glad is Michael. You added that in. I just couldn't do the voice bill, so I just needed you to do it. His um, name is Michael Buffer, just okay. for the record, for all the, for, for all the boxing fans out there. But yes, sure. uh, litigation is underway. Um, Robin Hood was hit with today with two different class actions, both of which were filed in federal court. One was filed in New York federal court by a guy named Brendan Nelson. Um, it sort of echoed the criticisms that you saw online after Robin Hood made this move to shut things down, that basically the company was doing this to help the big establishment players who had lost so much money, the hedge funds and the, you know, the big, um, you know, the big institutional companies to help yeah. them mitigate their losses that they had suffered in this. Quote, Robinhood is pulling securities like GME from its platform in order to slow growth and help benefit individuals and institutions who are not Robinhood customers, but are large institutional investors or potential investors. So that was the case filed in New York federal court. The other uh, case was filed in Chicago federal court in Illinois um, by a guy named Richard Gatz, who made, you know, in, in the big picture, pretty similar accusations. The quote from his lawsuit. The halting of trading these stocks was to protect institutional investment at the detriment of retail customers. Plaintiff is unable to get fair market value for his options contracts, and the manipulation has caused the price of the BB to fall. This is it's it's interesting because this is about, you know, a large number of, for lack of a better term, normal people who are like sort of like, you know, seizing upon the stock market. But this is really um, at a more granular level about like who gets to access the stock market in this way. And because of these apps, you know, we're talking about Robinhood. There's also Citadel, Ameritrade, Ally. It makes it easier. And so it sort of opens it up for this. Um, and now this is now a dispute between those sort of intermediaries and their customers. What is actually being alleged in terms of I mean, obviously like when the when the service just decides to pull the plug on certain trades? I know people aren't happy. What are they actually alleging? 
Yeah, it's it's interesting in the way that they get at what you were just describing, because there's two sort of big distinctions between these two cases. One is the actual claims that they're bringing. Uh, The the New York guy, Nelson, is claiming uh, breach of contract, breach of fiduciary duty and negligence here. So uh, he repeatedly cites to um, uh, uh, the private financial regulations. They're known as FINRA rules um, to support those claims. But they're mostly these, you know, breach of contract that we had a user contract, that kind of stuff. Gatz, on the other hand, the Chicago case, he is saying that Robinhood violated uh, SEC rule 10B5, which is one of the most fundamental SEC securities fraud rules so the sec can bring cases on that but also private uh you know private Mm -hmm. actors can as well yeah the other big distinction here is that um uh you know the 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 posture of these two cases gats the guy i was just talking about who's bringing the security fraud claim um he's claiming that he owns uh that you know that he used robin hood to to purchase these options and that that he's getting screwed by the fact that they then put the halt on it and it's losing value and all this other mm-hmm. stuff yeah nelson's claim the new york guy the breach of contract guy his claims are a little bit weirder and more speculative he, he just says that he wanted to buy it and that he couldn't like that he searched the platform and it wasn't there you know i think there are valid questions about whether or not that's the kind of harm that would get you into federal court i don't yeah. know um you know securities law super super well but uh but you know that sort of stood out to me when i when i was first looking at it um one final thing i i think that's interesting here is um you know i think it is beyond the scope of this show some of the some of the big takes you've seen about this whole to yeah. do out there um you know we'll save that for them there's plenty out there that uh you know we ha- are going to have lots of good coverage on this i thought kevin roos at the new york times had a very good sort of sober take on on what this moment means right now but for our purposes i thought the most interesting thing here is whether this leads to new financial regulation or new enforcement of yeah. existing financial regulations in a way that you know, we saw different things come out of 2008, 2009, and I think there's a lot of debate about the, the you know, how well that we responded to that. It'll be interesting to see what happens here. Um, we've seen AOC out there tweeting all day about, about um, you know, that there needs to be an investigation into Robin Hood, a lot of people supporting that position. Um, Elizabeth Warren, who's always been, you know, a very, uh, um, yeah. you know, she came, she rose to fame in, in speaking about new financial regulations. Architect she, of the CFPB. Yeah. Exactly. Um, she has also vowed action. There was a good quote from her, uh, I think it was yesterday, quote, For years, the same hedge funds, private equity firms, and wealthy investors dismayed by the GameStop trades have treated the stock market like their own personal casino, while everyone else pays the price. It's long past time for the SEC and other financial regulators to wake up and do their jobs. And with a new administration and Democrats running Congress, I intend to make sure they do. So it will be, um, you know, I think that's the the real takeaway, whether or not this is a galvanizing moment enough to go beyond these individual class actions and get into something more systemic yeah. about the way that Wall Street is regulated. Well, with the stock market in disarray, uh, the impeachment trial almost feels like a second order concern. But I did want to update the listeners a little bit on some points of intrigue that are going on with the second impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump which is going to get underway in the U.S. Senate next week. When they do that, a, uh, a key figure from Trump's first impeachment trial will not be in attendance. Uh, that, of course, is Chief Justice John Roberts, who is sitting out this time in order to tend to his other very important job, which, of course, is presiding over the highest court in the land. Um, instead of Roberts, uh, the person overseeing 
the uh, the impeachment trial will be the Senate's longest tenured Democrat, the president pro tempore, uh, Patrick Leahy of Vermont. That has already stirred up a little bit of uh, partisan bickering and some academic debate about exactly who should be the person who's in charge of an impeachment trial of a former president, which has never happened before in the, uh, in the nation. Yeah, history. I mean, this is the kind of thing where um, there have only been four, uh, including this one, only four impeachments. Um, that we've had to concern ourselves with. And in the past, it's always been a sitting president, and that means the the chief justice has presided. We're not in that situation now because Trump's out of office. So why did Roberts decline? Is it just because he doesn't have to? What do we know? Yeah, uh, just to catch everyone up, I think, I think most people know what's going on, but just for the sake of uh, being a completist, Trump was impeached when he was still in office. Uh, I think it was like, like a week or so before... Um, uh, Joe Biden assumed the office that was on one count of inciting an insurrection. That's, of course, a reference to the uh, the riot at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. The trial itself has been pushed to start at around February 9th. And if convicted, Trump would ostensibly be barred from seeking office again, though that is also subject to some legal debate, which we're not going to talk about now. Maybe we will if it comes to that. Um, but anyway, the, the, the trial is supposed to get underway, and it's the first trial of a former the first impeachment trial of a former president this week. Senate Democrats said that Leahy, who is the president pro tempore, he's the longest tenure Democrat, that Leahy and not Roberts would be overseeing those proceedings. Um, but just for the sake of a little bit of sort of, you know, backroom drama, there's a little bit of uncertainty into how that decision got made. Basically, it's not really clear if Roberts was asked to preside over the trial or if Democrats just determined on their own that Leahy should be the one to do it. Uh, when Leahy was asked directly this week if Roberts was invited, he somewhat cheekily said, you should ask the chief justice. Uh, we've not heard from Roberts on this. Uh, there was some reporting in Politico from a Capitol Hill source that said the chief justice uh, wants, quote, no further part of this, um, which might suggest that he's maybe a little bit burnt out on the impeachment thing. Um Roberts, he assumed when he did, when he presided over the last uh, impeachment trial for Trump, it was mostly ceremonial. I mean, he didn't, he just kind of marshaled the questioning and the proceedings in a purely procedural fashion. Um, but it did throw a wrench into his day job. He had to go to the Senate uh, about six days a week for nearly three weeks uh, in the right in the middle of the Supreme Court term. So it basically shifted the high court schedule so that they um, could only hear arguments in the morning while he was presiding over the proceedings uh, uh, in the Senate in the afternoon. But the point is, uh, he's not going to be there. It's going to be Patrick Leahy. And that's about where we stand. Yeah, I mean, I could see, you know, we don't know for sure how this decision was made, but I could see Roberts and the rest of the Supreme Court being kind of tired of things disrupting their regular term. I mean, it's, yeah. there's been a lot of um, staff changes with new justices over the last few years. Sure, We've had the sure. coronavirus. We had a previous impeachment trial. Mm -hmm. So there's just been a lot of disruption. I would imagine they really just would like to get back to regular business over there. Yeah. Um, the more the more interesting stuff, I think, that arises here, and this this came out uh, in full view in a story by Andrew Craigie, our, our Capitol Hill reporter, um, which is about exactly what the Constitution says in this regard. So the Constitution plainly states that the Senate is in charge of holding impeachment trials and that when the president has been impeached, the chief justice must preside over that trial. It's That is said explicitly in the Constitution. But it's silent on who should oversee proceedings when anybody but a sitting president is tried, which has happened a handful of times in the nation's history for 
judges and other elected officials and things like that. In nearly all of impeachment trials that have, that have involved a non-president, the the president, the, the Senate president pro tempore, who is Leahy in this in this instance, has stepped in to oversee it. The chief justice has not done that. So the Democrats are following that protocol now, and Leahy himself acknowledged, you know, he will have a when it comes to time to vote, he as a Democratic member of the Senate will vote on whether to convict Trump. But he also occupies this separate duty of overseeing the procedure from sort of a clerical point. And he gave this quote about sort of how, how seriously he's taking that. He said, quote, when presiding over an impeachment trial, the president pro tempore takes an additional special oath to do impartial justice according to the Constitution and the laws. It is an oath that I take extraordinarily seriously. He likened it to basically regular oversight of Senate floor proceedings, which he sometimes has to do, where he's required to make rules on procedure and questions that are kind of divorced from his party affiliation. And he sort of sees no no, no difference between that and this, even though the stakes might be a little bit higher in this regard. Very few things involving any of this stuff uh, is is non controversial. So, I mean, is this is this something that everyone has sort of agreed is going to bit of a mixed bag? Going to work? Some of the I mean, more what, senior uh, Republicans, what are Republicans like Lindsey Graham, for example, came out and said he had no issue with it. He understood it to be the norm for non presidential impeachment trials, and he said, you know, Patrick Leahy, you know, like like they always do. Patrick Leahy, he's a friend of mine. I have no doubt he'll carry this out fine. Mitch McConnell. Was a little more was a little more vague. He said it was unclear as to who should preside in such an instance, but he didn't raise a specific ob- objection to Leahy doing the job. Uh, there were others, though, uh, Rand Paul of Kentucky and Josh Hawley of Missouri, who said that basically Leahy presiding as the longest tenured Democrat rendered the entire proceeding sort of a partisan farce, taking place outside the bounds of the Constitution, which. I'm sure we'll lay the groundwork for for some theatrics when this finally gets underway. Like I said before, I would encourage if if you're interested in this, um, just from kind of a academic intellectual uh, uh, standpoint, definitely encourage you to read Andrew Craigie's story on this. He talks to some professors about the history of impeachment proceedings. Uh, very illuminating in that regard. Uh, Leahy actually was briefly hospitalized uh, after he was named uh, to to preside over this on uh, on Tuesday. Uh, he's he, he he went back to work on on Wednesday, so everything I think should be should be fine. There was talk that Kamala Harris, as vice president, pre- presiding over the Senate in a ceremonial role, would have to maybe do it. Uh, which uh, Andrew talked to a law professor who noted that a vice president hasn't presided over an impeachment trial since 1798, uh, which was Thomas Jefferson uh, when he was uh, presiding over the impeachment of a former senator who allegedly conspired with Great Britain in a territorial dispute. So the stuff runs deep if you're uh, really if you're really uh, interested in this stuff. So I would check out Andrew's story, and of course stay tuned for uh, the impeachment trial itself. Uh, if anything of note happens, uh, we will update you. But uh, John Roberts will not be there.
Judges and courthouse staff are often on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic, but they've largely been left to fend for themselves for priority access to the vaccines. And the results across the country have been predictably inconsistent. Here to talk about the whole situation is Law360's Jack Karp, uh, who dug into this very interesting situation for us for our new uh, legal industry section, Pulse. Welcome to the show, Jack. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Bill. Nice to see you guys again. Yeah. Thank you. So before we get into everything with the you know the, the problems that your story sort of dug into, let's talk a little bit first just to get everyone oriented on you know, why it is that judges and people who work in courthouses need this access to vaccines. Right. And I mean, the the biggest reason is because, you know, since uh, since the pandemic began in March, most courthouses around the country have been closed. Some are doing, you know, virtual court hearings. Some aren't doing anything at all. Um, And even the courts that are doing kind of virtual proceedings, they're mostly procedural, you know, hearings, you know, Mm -hmm. um, you know, arraignments for in the case of criminal criminal cases, but there has been very few, you know, if any, um, what you like jury trials that are that are happening or have right. happened for basically ten months. So what's happening as a result is there's this huge backlog in cases that is just kind of building up. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one judge in Texas I spoke to recently um, told me that she thinks it'll take at least two years for her courts to work through the backlog when the pandemic is over. And that's just civil cases. That doesn't even get into criminal cases where defendants have a constitutional right to a speedy trial. Right, uh, right. A trial that, speedy yeah. trials that are just not happening right now. Yeah, uh, it's your your story sort of laid out the the urgency. It's It's maybe not at the top of mind for a lot of people who aren't in the legal world about like people who might sort of demand early access to the vaccine but like you say when there's a when there's a duty to provide quick you know justice uh, uh, as best you can the courts were overloaded and backlogged in many jurisdictions anyway and this is only sort of exacerbating that absolutely but sto- yeah well your story did a really good job of laying out a lot of the confusion that's going on from sort of jurisdiction to jurisdiction about how and when judges and court staff can get the vaccine. And you did a really great job uh, sort of pinpointing a very specific difference here between New York and Pennsylvania. These are these are neighboring states that have very different experiences for judges and court staff who are trying to get the vaccine. Why don't you break that down for us? Absolutely. So um, Pennsylvania, um, their health department has issued guidance that basically puts all members of the judiciary and their staffs in phase 1C, which is their third um, vaccination phase. And let's, mm-hmm. let's yeah. just be clear, Pennsylvania and most states are still in phase 1A because <laughs> the vaccine yeah. rollout has yeah. been slow. But they have, they have basically prioritized ju- the judiciary and said that we are going to vaccinate judges and court staff in this section to make sure that we can get our courts back open and we can get cases moving. New York, on the other side of the border, has done something that's interesting and confusing. Um, They have placed um, court officers in phases 1A and 1B of their uh, vaccination um, kind of design. Um, You know, they could have started to get vaccinated as recently as January 11th, the people in those categories. Mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, um, that's unclear judges are not included in that category. So if you're a judge in Pennsylvania, you theoretically can get vaccinated, 
you know, shortly as soon as Pennsylvania makes it into that phase. But there's no um, clear date for when judges across the line in New York will be able to get vaccinated, even though court officers will be able to get vaccinated. Um, and obviously, there's it makes been a, a certain, lot of it makes it makes a certain amount of sense, right? The idea that that there's, you know, court officers are perhaps dealing with people on a closer basis than judges, but then at the it, sort of at the same time, you know, judges are often older uh, in age and maybe are in some of yeah. those other groups. So, um, you know, it's you can see sort of both sides of it. But, um, you know, this I thought it was so interesting to look at those two those two states. But but from your story, it really seems like from you know that across the entire country, we're seeing this sort of like every different place is treating their courts a little bit differently. Absolutely. So, um, you know, when I spoke to somebody at the administrative office of the, the U.S. courts and, you know, he pointed out that so the CDC issued guidance and it's just guidance. It's not, you know, it doesn't hold any states to anything, but it it, it places judges and, and court workers in category 1C. And um, the the person I spoke with the U.S. courts pointed out that, you know, some states have decided to go one better and place their judges in category 1B, while other states have, haven't placed judges in category 1 at all. Um, so it is, it's a total patchwork um, across the states. And the fact that there's no national guidance um, coming from the federal judiciary basically means that judges are kind of beholden to whatever the rules are in their individual states. Um, and so, yeah, so basically judges have been kind of left kind of, you know, reaching out to governors, reaching out to public health officials, public health departments, kind of in some cases pleading, you know, to be included yeah. in the vaccination program so that they can get their courts back open. There's been lots of instances of, you know, in all in, in in many different walks of life throughout the pandemic uh, about sort of being subjected to your state's, you know, rollout of its own protocols and things like that. This is obviously that this holds true in this regard as well. You included a number of illuminating examples of state and federal courts, you know, like the, about the, the, the sort of vacuum of federal leadership right. and sort of trying to make their case or well, for, for lack of a better word, lobby state authorities to sort of bump them up in the or, or if not bump them up to right. just consider them. Can, yeah. you, can you talk about that Absolutely. a little bit? I mean, so, I don't want to put the put words in anyone's mouth. Yeah. yeah. So there's a, you know, there's a bunch of um, chief judges in the, at the federal court and state court levels who have been kind of writing letters to governors, to public health officials, to public health departments asking exactly that. You know, one, one judge I spoke to um, chief judge, Pamela Pepper, in the Eastern District of Wisconsin, she want, she made it clear, like, we're not asking to jump the line ahead of anybody. Yeah. We just want to remind you that we're here and that we do an essential job. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's right. some chief judges in Texas. The, the Ninth Circuit Chief Judge, Sidney Thomas, wrote to the governor of California. Uh, chief D Judge in the Eastern District, District of Michigan, um, Denise Page, wrote to that state's governor. Um, you know, we have the, the you know, Chief Judge of New York, Janet DeFiore, gave us just a speech, I think it was just last week, basically lambasting Governor Cuomo for not including judges in his priority vaccination um, scheme. Um, and basically what a lot of these judges are saying is kind of what we've talked about already is mm -hmm. that, you know, 
we can't get through the backlogs of these cases until judges and court staff are vaccinated and courts can open again. And you literally have criminal defendants who have been sitting in jail awaiting trial since the pandemic started, unable to get their day in court. Um, And that these are essential functions. And one of the things I, I find really interesting is that the Department of Homeland Security actually did kind of label judges, court officers, the judiciary as an essential function, as essential workers. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't actually seem to have helped at all in terms of getting them vaccinated. Right. Well, and that's uh, that's what I thought was so interesting in in your story was that the you know, there's to a certain extent you expect state courts and state governments in a situation like this to, you know, go their own way to a certain extent. There was always going to be that patchwork when it came to those. But that absence of any sort of top-down plan for the federal courts, I thought was so interesting that you yeah, know, I'm like think, a suggestion or a right, directive. That you think there'd be something, something yeah. they yeah. could do, but it really seems like their position is this is just up to whatever state these courts are in. Right, and the, the the interesting thing about that too is that the same holds true for how these courts are operating. There's also no national guidance in right. terms of are courts open? Are they doing in person hearings? Are they doing virtual proceedings? That is also kind of on the backs of each individual court, not even with not even each individual state, but each individual court within the state. Um, and so, yeah, that's definitely you know working on the story. That's kind of you know the big takeaway that I think I got was just how much of a random discombobulated patchwork this is. And a lot of the judges I spoke to um, at the state and federal level were not even as upset that they can't get, you know, their judges and their staff prioritized for vaccination. They can't even find out from their states when they will be able to get vaccinated. A lot of these states just aren't even answering them in terms of when that could possibly happen. And of course, you can't plan to open the courts if you don't know when the court staff is going to be vaccinated. Well, it's um, we we you know we're 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 hoping for all our uh, our judges and our courthouse staffs out there that that everyone can uh, you know get a at least some sort of clarity fairly soon. Um, yeah, it was it was a great uh, great story and thanks for coming on, Jack. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me. our show is something offbeat and Alex I know you have one for us today yeah so we're going to talk about Lord of the Rings here uh, which emerged in a legal filing in Texas in a lawsuit challenging uh, the results of the 2020 election if you hadn't heard enough of those yet but before we talk about that specifically I just want to note as a matter of uh, of show canon Bill myself and producer Steve independently of one another in like the last couple of weeks of quarantine recently uh, completed a rewatch of the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, which I just thought was a little bit of wonderful kismet among the pro se crew, just like dudes watching Lord of the Rings when they got nothing else to do. They're good films. You, you guys are so well aligned that when this was revealed, it didn't surprise me at all that independently <laughs> you guys had all had this idea. Yeah, so we can sort of unpack our takes uh, about that in a second, but let's talk about the story here for a second. So 
uh, Trump supporters, there are there are. Um, oh, I uh, thought you were, I thought you were going to talk about the story of Lord of the Rings. Oh, that. Oh, yeah, that's going to be a whole other thing. Yeah, um, um, could you unpack that for me? But do it in only like four minutes before the end of the show. So. <laughs> Uh, it was the age of Elendil. And <laughs> I think it was it the was third 10, age, I think. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> no. Uh, so a group of Trump supporters, I think it was uh, Latinos for Trump and blacks for Trump, which is frankly something I feel uncomfortable saying out loud. But that is the uh, that is the party that filed this lawsuit. Uh, they filed a lawsuit in Texas trying to overturn the results of the election, which you've it, it follows a fact pattern that you've heard a lot in recent months. And um, we don't have to get into exactly what they allege, but where we're talking about it now is that in a new filing last week, they want uh, Gondor-style stewards sure. to basically seize the government right. back from the Biden administration until yep. their case is settled on mm-hmm. the merits, right? Uh, to to sort of just as a as a as a placeholder until sure. the rightful president. Uh, can be ascertained. Uh, this, of course, they within the brief they 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 pull prominently from the Tolkien text uh, "Return of the King," which features the steward of Gondor, uh, uh, you know, filling in for the for for the king who is not yet there. We should, of course, mention that that he uh, he ultimately lights himself on fire and jumps off of a mountain. Yeah, uh, that is true. that is I the mean, conclusion to his storyline. I think it's important also to note that all representative democracies are based off of um, fantasy fiction novels. That's usually how they work. Yeah, well, that's certainly. I mean, if you read if you read this filing, that's certainly the impression you get. This is in a lengthy footnote um, of their to their steward idea. If you guys will just give me a little bit of room here to read, it's quite a piece of writing. Buddy, you can take as much room as you need. Okay, okay. During the course of the epic trilogy, the rightful king of Gondor has abandoned the throne. I have a note on that myself in a second. Uh, Since only the rightful king could sit on the throne of Gondor, a steward was appointed to manage Gondor until the return of the king, known as Aragorn, Occurred Title in the end reference. of the story. Yes, exactly. Uh, this analogy is applicable since there is now in Washington, D.C., a group of individuals calling themselves the president, vice president, and Congress who have no rightful claim to govern the American people. Accordingly, as set forth in the proposed temporary restraining order, as a remedy, the court should appoint a group of special masters, the stewards, to provide a check to the power of, of the illegitimate president until this constitutional crisis can be resolved through a peaceful legal process of a preliminary injunction hearing and a trial and a jury trial on the merits. So that's what they're after. You um, know, the, the the term special masters has always kind of made me laugh anyway. That's true. It does true. sort of feel <laughs> like it's from this realm anyway. Somewhat medieval, somewhat fantastical. Sure. Yes. If you're wondering if in the filing they have a suggestion for who the stewards ought to be, uh, it is in fact the entirety of the Trump administration cabinet. We're bringing them back. Very We're bringing good. them back. They, by, by order of the Constitution, they, they relinquish their duties when the new inauguration happens, but not as this lawsuit would have you tell it. They're nope. back. They're all sort of collectively marshalling their specific powers mm-hmm. to hold uh, hold in place the government uh, until this lawsuit is uh, is resolved. At which time they will light themselves on fire and jump off of a mountain. And launch themselves off of Minas Tirith, yes. Um, so, yeah, so that's what's going on in this suit. I mean, now I think we should just... I remember when I saw Return of the King in the theater, and I was very struck by the steward of Gondor, 
who is uh, named Denethor II. And I just, he was a, he's a very striking character because he's very arch. He's very evil. Mm-hmm. And it's not really, it was never, now I, I've not he read the novel. He eats very grotesquely in the and film. Yeah, yeah. He's biting into tomatoes. Like he's like a glutton. Things are like running yeah. down his chin. Um, it was never really, and I've not read the novels. I'm sure people are listening who, have, who are steeped in the novels who are like screaming at me now. It was never really clear to me why he was so mean. He had two sons who were very honorable <laughs> men. Sure. And he wasn't actively corrupted like Theoden was in Rohan. Um, but uh, yeah. It's like he, I'm hearing a foreign language being spoken this on is this awesome. podcast. This like, is well, awesome. I'm, I've only seen one of these movies. I'm so lost, you guys. Oh, you never saw, do you, you never saw Return because of the Because the first one is so much walking around, I couldn't make it well, beyond that. Well, then these probably aren't for you. There's a lot of walking around going on in basically the entire trilogy. That's kind of the <laughs> point, in fact. Do you think that Stephen Colbert has heard about this lawsuit? Because this seems like the perfect amalgamation of his comedy style where he talks about po- politics and he loves Lord of the Rings famously it's been on many of his programs that that sort of insight this feels like something he should talk about I haven't seen that um would be curious to know um the one idea I had is Bill do you remember how the steward of Gondor he doesn't sit on the throne but he's got a little chair he's got a little special chair just he's got him. a little special big boy chair mm-hmm. uh next to the throne it would be funny if now, there's many stewards in this regard. It's the whole cabinet. But if they appointed one, if he had a little desk <laughs> next to the Oval Office desk, mm-hmm. and he would just kind of write things by fiat, which is kind of interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, this, I don't know. Is this how people felt all those years when I was talking about Game of Thrones? Like, <laughs> you're either in this group or you're fully uh, out. Oh, yeah. We've lost some listeners in the last three <laughs> to four minutes, for sure. Well, well, I mean, that may be a good time for me to cut this off before you guys go deeper into this Tolkien universe. Yeah, I have to go summon the uh, the the ghosts of the abandoned kings of Gondor anyway to save us. Great. Uh, Great. From there may the, come uh, a day when this lawsuit will prevail, but it is not this day. It is not this day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we will. Yeah, we're gonna have to save us from the encroaching Urukai. So it, yeah, it uh, Great, it right, might okay. be a good we're time. We're done here, guys. I think we're really done here. Okay. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Thanks for being with me, Alex. Thank you. And Bill. See you again next week, guys. Maybe. (laughs) We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Jack Karp, and our contributing reporters, Morgan Connolly and Andrew Craigie. Music for the show comes from silent partner Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a written review wherever you're listening to podcasts. It helps other people find us. If you want to read more about the things we've talked about today, go over to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week. The one thing I forgot to say was, and we don't have to go back or anything, is like uh, I took issue with them saying that they abandoned that the that the kings of Gondor abandoned Gondor. <laughs> yeah, I think they died. Erner was was trapped by the Witch King in right, Minos Morgul, right, and he died right, without right. an heir, and so it was vacant. So I right, mean, right. I, frankly, it's just it's it, it's very frankly irresponsible, and it's just a misreading of the text. Um,